Good morning, everybody. I see we already have some people here today. Bright and early on a Wednesday morning. Thanks for joining us. This is the Turfcraft Epistemology YouTube and podcast. I'm Travis Shaddix. Um, I uh, am a former, 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 all sorts of stuff. And um, <clears throat> I'm glad to have you here today. A few housekeeping items. Don't forget, I broke my tooth. I got to go to the dentist tomorrow morning, so we will not be on tomorrow morning. I'll try to get on tomorrow afternoon if I'm not shot up with drugs and I can speak. If not, then I'll come on Friday morning or as soon as I can thereafter once the drugs wear off. <clears throat> so that's all I've got to, to do for, for housekeeping because I want to get into today's uh, episode. Today, <clears throat> I'm super excited because I've gone over a couple papers from the author I have on today and I felt sort of odd because I was like, I think I'm screwing this up. So I just emailed him and said, hey, can you come on and go over this other paper with me because I don't want to mess this one up. This one's really important as well. So there's, there's three things that really um, get me excited about scientists, and that is <clears throat> scientists who publish, scientists who publish a lot, and scientists who publish a lot on practical information. And my guest today, Dr. Ross Braun, checks all of those boxes. Good morning, Dr. Braun. How are you? Hey, good morning, Travis. Great to be here. If you look up Dr. Braun's information on Google Scholar, it'll go, well, that's pretty good. And then you look at the years he's been doing it, which is not that many, and you go, well, holy crap, holy crap, this guy's publishing a lot. That's what I like to see. And if you look at your work, I, I love scientists who don't lose sight of the practical importance of their work, right? Yeah, a lot of, um, so a lot of the research I was doing at Purdue University and, um, and even now at Kansas City University, it's a lot of applied research. How can I get this out to the, the practitioner, to the professional? Um, so that's a lot of my focus on many different areas, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. Your, your background real briefly is, um, you actually owned and operated a, a lawn care company in North Dakota, if I'm not mistaken, for, for several years before joining, uh, the academic world, I suppose. Is that true? Yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. A little background about myself. Um, born and raised in North Dakota, um, had my own lawn and landscaping business through high school, part of, um, college. And then while I was doing my undergrad, um, studies at North Dakota State University, I switched over into the golf course industry, actually, and started interning at golf courses. Um, after working at a few different golf courses around the country, realized, hey, I wanted to go on to grad school and, and kind of dive into the science behind all this, this turf grass management side of things. And so then after uh, my undergrad at North Dakota State, I came down to Kansas State here and got my master's and continued on here for my PhD. And then after that, I um, started a postdoctoral position at Purdue University working for Dr. Aaron Patton mm. at Purdue. And that kind of evolved into a research scientist role that I was there for a little over four and a half years. Mm -hmm. And then this position opened up here at Kansas State University where I'm currently at um, as an assistant professor of turf grass and landscape management. I'm the director of our research station here uh, where we conduct turf grass science research. Um, I oversee all the undergraduate um, program for our undergrad students majoring in turf grass management. So I oversee the curriculum and advise all them. And then I have my own research program here at Kansas State University as well with uh, three grad students. So that, that helps me understand how you got all those papers out. You, so you're working at Purdue with Aaron for several years as a postdoc. Yes, that, that, yep. Yeah, that explains it exactly. The, 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 we were, he doesn't sit around doing nothing. He's, he's, no, we were pumping <laughs> him out. We were, we were busy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good time. One of my favorite, most favorite memories or whatever, when I was a postdoc just for a year or two, and I think I got six, five or six papers out in like a year. It's just fun to be able to sit there and just write if that's what you enjoy. You know, it sounds like that's yeah, what you Yeah, and do. I do. I do enjoy that. So it's, it, I enjoyed getting out in the field in the summertime and then writing all winter pretty much. So. Yeah. You have a couple of really good graphs in the paper we're going to talk about today. I want to make sure we end up um, getting to those, but that, that helps explain you know, I was curious, like how, how in the world do you get that many papers out that fast? And, and, and Aaron and the guys at Purdue do, do a, have a, have a great program there and you, you yeah. hooked onto them and, and really pumped them out. That's great. So, and now you're at K-State, is that Dale's position at K-State that you have? Uh, no, it's a, it's a combination of, um, Dr. Steve Keeley and Kathy, Dr. Kathy Lavis, who was, okay. Kathy Lavis taught more on the irrigation side of things. Okay. Um, and then, Dr. Keeley and Dr. Fry, they were doing all the teaching for the turf grass classes, right? And oh, okay. so 
Dr. Keeley's still here, but he's a department head. And so I took over all of his teaching um, uh, for turf and then I took over the irrigation side of things for, for Dr. Labus. So. Oh, okay. And okay. Then, yeah, Dale, Dr. Dale Brammer, he retired last summer, about, um, and, and sorry, in 2022, about the time I got here. So we have yet to fill his position. So. Oh, okay. He's such a yeah. nice guy. I mean, yeah. I, I like seeing <clears throat> senior guys like that. I seen, I don't mean senior in the sense of age. I mean, senior in the sense of experience and, and knowledge. And he's just so, I don't know, humble and pleasant to be around. And nice. I was like, man, it's so, you know, it's easy to have an inflated ego when you're as smart as he is, but he's, he's always very easy to approach and very nice and, and caring about yeah, people. He was- he was my advisor when I did my PhD here, so I definitely learned a lot from him. So, well, great, that's fantastic. <clears throat> well, let's get. Thanks for the background. Let Let's get into um, today's, um, you know, episode or show and, and the yeah. con the content, <clears throat> and that is, I, I went over a couple of your papers and then the, I got to this one and I'm like, uh oh. You know, I want to make sure we get into this because you have a decision tree in there that I like, and I want to make sure that I get it correct. And um, so who better to talk to and explain it to us than the author himself who wrote it. So tell us a, bit, a little bit about this paper, the project, how it came, how it came about, what questions were you trying to answer uh, as you, you know, began this work and started writing it up? Yeah, so this project, um, it was funded by the USDA NEFA um, organization. We, this was part of a larger low input uh, multi-university grant. And myself and Dr. Aaron Patton's kind of responsibility with that grant is we first started things out writing a literature review on fine fescues. And so I, I led that through a multi-university um, author team. And, and what we kind of found doing that literature review on fine fescues is there's a lot, you know, these fine fescues, we label them as low input grasses. And there's been some research in the past and, and to kind of show their performance being managed as a low input site compared to other species. Um, but like the same fertilizer, fertilizer regime or irrigation regime was applied across all those. And there wasn't really any quantification of, of what was actually going into that system. And so we, we can see from past research that, yeah, these, these fine fescues do really well uh, when we manage them as a low input, but then, okay, well, how much actual less inputs do they require if we start comparing them to other cool season grasses? How much less fertilizer, how much less pesticides do they require? And so we we wanted to set out and start actually saying, can we put some numbers to this? Can we actually quantify this? Um, and then with all that, we know there's just improvements through breeding programs with genetics of these grasses. And so can we start to separate out some of the newer cultivars, some of the compared to some of the older cultivars? And 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 what we found also with that literature review is, you know, there's some older and this kind of goes not just for fine fescues, but really, you know, all, all grasses. There's some older cultivars that have been around for many, many years that are still sold. Um, and they and in the case of fine fescues, they start giving some of the fine fescue different taxes, some uh, like a bad reputation hmm. uh, just because of the poor performance, you know, and it's the kind of the same way with tall fescues, right? Like Kentucky 31, mm -hmm. K31 tall fescue, which has been around for. Oh man, what 60 some years now or more. Um, but it's still commonly sold because it produces a good seed yield. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's just a really low input or sorry, low quality turf grass. It's you know, it's that forage type tall fescue, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's the same situation with fine fescues. We got one, for example, like strong creeping red fescue. There's a cultivar called Boreal. Okay. Uh, it's still very commonly sold today. Um, and it produces a really high seed yield uh, up in Canada. They grow it a lot up there. Mm -hmm. so the, the seed growers can make a lot of money off it and make good income. But when it trickles down to the turf management side of things, it produces really poor quality. And so we wanted, that's one of the cultivars we included in this study to compare and say, hey, look, could these newer cultivars, we know they have better performance, but do they also require less inputs than some of the older cultivars? Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause it, we have that problem here in Kentucky where Kentucky 31, people go to the big, big box stores and they see Kentucky 31 or they see Kentucky bluegrass. And so they end up buying it yeah. and putting it out in their lawns. And what uh, Dr. Munshaw and myself have found over the various in-tep studies that we've done here or did here before they close is that those two, that species of Kentucky th or the species of bluegrass and the variety or cultivar of, of tall fescue are really what you don't want to put in your lawn here in Kentucky in central Kentucky and it just, yeah. the, the inputs are substantially more than just the turf type, the other turf type tall fescue. So it's interesting. You had a similar idea or similar, um, 
observation in fine fescues as well. So there's there's yeah. different cultivars of fine fescues that require more inputs than say others, or at least that was the observation. And then the idea that you had was, can we actually quantify that and measure that? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and we'll, and we'll see when we start talking about this, but we included Kentucky 31 because it's the same problem in Indiana okay. or even here in Kansas, right? We got people that see the K31 or Kentucky 31 tall fescue on the shelf. It's cheaper yeah. seed. Yep. And a lot of people maybe get that confused thinking it's Kentucky bluegrass. Yeah. Uh, or they're just the price of the seed is cheaper. And so they go that route and then they end up paying for it later on because they're having to mow it more often or having to throw yeah. more input. In and it's the first, uh, it's a big pallet right in front of the, with the box stores. When you walk in, it's a big pallet it says, yep. you know, Kentucky 31 on it. And the other seed oftentimes is a blended seed with something else. And it's stuck in the back and a, you know, whatever, 10 pound bag or five pound bag in the back. And, yep. and I walked by there, I'm like, oh man, can we, please help, help us out a little bit here. You know, we're, we're doing all this work and, you know, and then they end up using these wrong varieties, but anyway, or less, less, the uh, more in higher input varieties, I should say. So what you've talked about is basically the introduction, right? I mean, that's sort of the setting yeah. as to why you did it and what you were observing and, and sort of the, the, um, <clears throat> the setting. Let me just read, um, the objectives or you can read the objective, whatever. And, and then let me read it. And then if I, if you want to add anything to it, or if I miss something, let me know. But so the objectives okay. of this study, uh, were to quantify the performance in the amount of fertilizer and pesticide inputs of cool season turf grass species when managed as a variable input turf grass system, including fine fescues. That's actually much more challenging. Uh, we're doing something like this similar in the, in the world of soil testing where you want to quantify like inputs. Um, and there has to be some sort of metric that you use to trigger an input, right? And it's actually right. much more complicated than it sounds. Oh, we're just going to measure the amount of inputs. Well, you do, but <laughs> there's more to it than just that. Um, so in the United States, Northern, okay. In, in to determine if newer cultivars can provide higher turf quality with fewer inputs compared to old cultivars. And that's what I also, I'm, I'm a soil fertility person. So the inputs and fertilizers are what kind of gets me interested. But when it comes to the new cultivars versus old cultivars, I haven't seen a whole lot of that on the newer cultivars. I haven't seen a lot of work on that. And this work obviously includes that. And that's something that really interests me because um, <clears throat> when I'm trying to explain to my neighbors, for example, your lawn was planted when your when your house was built in 95, 96, the, at some point, the genetics, the improvements in genetics are going to be good enough to where you need to consider replacing your lawn because it's not, you know, tall fescue is tall fescue. It's not, it's not that way. You know, it really is substantially better now than it was 25, 30 years ago in terms of the, the varieties and the cultivars and the, the management inputs that are required to, to maintain an acceptable lawn. Is that a fair statement you think? Oh yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, and it, it, it could, for a variety of reasons of those genetic improvements, whether it's better disease resistance or better drought tolerance, potentially less water requirements. Mm -hmm. And so there's multiple ways you could go about that. You know, if someone wanted to um, incorporate those new cultivars, you can obviously do a complete renovation and just start over. And that's maybe your best bet. Um, but you could also just buy maybe continually to overseed in the fall and start incorporating in those newer cultivars and maybe make a more dynamic stand that way that that could potentially work as well. Yeah. That'd be some interesting research as far as <clears throat> obviously be able to separate out the new from the old that yeah. easily. Um, but how, how does that population <clears throat> shift? Yeah, I think here in my neighborhood, the neighbors had have just done the overseeding for a while, for several years. They just put a little seed out in the fall. I don't know what seed they got off the, out of the store. I don't know. I wasn't here, but, um, They've done that for a while. And then what happened was I came in and I just wiped out my lawn <laughs> and put in a new variety. I mean, you know, a blended 100% turf type tall fescue blend. And they were like, what's going on over there? And I said, you know, oftentimes when you're dealing with a hodgepodge mixture of Heinz 57 turf grass and weeds and all sorts of cultivars, it's easiest to me just to set it clean, start with a new slate and then, and then, you know, put in this, put in the seed that you want. And then they caught on to that. And they, well, I want to do that. And then the next neighbor. So now there's three of us in this little cul-de-sac that have done that <laughs> over the last three. And I was like, well, you can keep adding and adding and adding. If that's and my, my take on it is if you're, if that's satisfactory to you, then who am I to say it's not, you know, if you want to oversee in the fall and you're okay with that, then great. No problem. Um, I'm not going to tell you not to do it, but if you want a lawn like what I have, or you want something more uniform, then it's probably best to just 
cut your losses, start from scratch, and then, you know, you have a nice clean uniform stand of, you know, a blended newer variety turf, turf type tall fescue. Anyway, that, that's, yeah, I agree. I agree. The, yeah, I wonder what it would cost. I mean, there's very, I see more and more number uh, money papers coming out. Like what does it actually cost to do these things? I haven't, that's not historically been a, a standard that we use. I wish it was, but mm-hmm. like how much does it actually cost to put forth the upfront money to wipe out the lawn, start from scratch, and then measure the inputs from the beginning to the end versus just simply applying in the fall, overseeding in the fall, and never, you know, it'd be interesting to see how much that costs if there's some way we could quantify that, but I guess that's for yeah. another time. <laughs> okay, so the materials and methods. You wanna walk through the materials and methods? I'll just kind of scroll down as you're kind of walking through it. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. I'll Go get ahead. a little brief overview here. So um, yeah, this experiment, we conducted it up at the University of Minnesota. We collaborated with um, Dr. Eric Watkins up there and then obviously down at uh, Purdue University in Indiana. Uh, and then so both sites, we conducted this as a multi-year study. So we had three-year study at both sites. Um, and then we, set up as a randomized complete block design. We had 15 treatments. Those 15 treatments were individual cultivars of different cool season grasses. And so we had mm-hmm. eight cool season grasses and some of those cool season grasses, um, and you can kind of see them in table two there yeah. on the next page. Yeah. We, some of them had either a new and an, then an old cultivar. So we could start comparing these new and improved varieties compared to an older variety, but we didn't do that with every individual species. Okay. Um, some species like sheep fescue and and mm-hmm. Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrass, we just had either one cultivar or for the Kentucky bluegrass, we were we made sure to include multiple different types of Kentucky bluegrass. And yeah. so we see with more research coming out, you know, these Kentucky bluegrass cultivars, depending on their type, uh, respond differently to different management um, settings, uh, whether it's a compact America or midnight and so on. So we wanted to include some different uh, classifications of Kentucky bluegrass. So you're dealing with a pretty big study. You got 15 yeah. treatments it's and two six locations. And a half foot, six and a half foot plots. So yeah, it, it took up quite a bit of space. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, those are big, big areas to do. And you have two locations over three years. So this is not something we just threw out in our backyard. This is a pretty substantial study here. Yeah. Okay. And so we, we, we seeded everything in the fall just based on, you know, best management practices. Um, and our main goal there was just to get everything fully established before the next year. So we could start the next year actually taking data. Okay. And so we didn't take any data get during establishment. We just wanted everything established. Um, and so we have, you know, our pretty typical seeding rates there for these different, uh, species. Yeah. Um, and then we, irrigated everything during establishment to promote establishment. And then the, the following years during the growing seasons, we actually turned off the irrigation uh, during the summertime to to manage these as what we're calling calling a variable or low input system that would be a non-irrigated uh, turf site. Oh, okay, so um, can, I, can yeah. I interject just one second? So basically, yeah. if, I, if I understand this correctly, you have these, you have 15 different turf grass treatments you seeded them, allowed them to establish, watered them, allowed them to establish, got them uh, quote unquote fully established. I guess you want to call it that. Got them established beyond the, uh, at least outside the establishment period. And then after that, you turn the water off. And then at yes. that point you started to collect data. Yes, that's correct. And we actually came in that following spring at both sites. We did give all the treatments a little bit of fertilizer there, uh, okay. half pound of nitrogen in Indiana and two half pound applications in Minnesota just to promote and get everything up to hundred percent establishment okay. um, before the summer set in. So, okay. but then after that, yeah, we, we, we turned off the irrigation. Obviously they're getting rainfall and at, you know, that in Minnesota, that was almost pretty much enough rainfall and in Indiana too, they, although there was times they were definitely um, experiencing drought stress, then they would bounce back in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so during those growing seasons, uh, the following three years, uh, you know, from spring green up all the way until they're, uh, you know, about November uh, and they're pretty much shutting down for the year. We were going in at different, um, different time points. And that's where we get into the data collected there. And, okay. um, really maybe the best way to summarize this is just looking at table three. Okay. And so this is where we have that decision tree, um, that we came up with and at different, uh, rating frequencies and different things we're rating for there, we would go in, um, and rate all the plots and, and based on these different, 
uh, ratings and thresholds, and then that would determine if a response application was required for each individual plot. And so we rate everything from visual turf quality to visual turf cover, then also different weed. Um, we split up the weed classifications by the type of weed, like whether it's a winter annual grass or a perennial broadleaf, and then we'd rate those at different times of the year. Hmm. And we set thresholds. So, for example, if um, you know, like summer annual grasses like crabgrass and goosegrass or foxtail, if they were, if we had over 10% infestation in the plant, then that would uh, that would trigger a response application to then spray that individual plot and okay. then we would we would quant we would catalog every single time that happened and we started to add up our our pesticide inputs but then also fertilizer inputs which we scroll down in that table a little bit more there uh, for the fertilizer response you can see there we had different a variety of different things that could trigger a fertilizer response whether it was a low turf quality score mm-hmm. uh, we rated on a one to nine scale and you know typically for a lot of turf grass studies we would say six would be minimally acceptable right yeah and if maybe i was working with a, a golf course putting green which has a higher um higher expectation i would probably say seven being minimally acceptable but for this being kind of what we're thinking a low input site non-irrigated we said okay maybe there's a little more wiggle room there and we're going to say five is minimally acceptable so anything anytime it drops below five uh, due to poor quality or density of that plot, then we would we would apply some fertilizer, an application of one pound of nitrogen using a slow release. Okay. Um, at a at a proper time of the year, we obviously we, if it was like that in the middle of summer in July, we wouldn't apply fertilizer responses because that wouldn't be a best management practice to throw down a bunch of fertilizer in the heat of the summer, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And then also if we saw different uh, low <laughs> nitrogen diseases like rust or dull or spot or red thread, that would also trigger a uh, nitrogen fertilizer application as well. So. Okay. So just let me, <clears throat> let me reiterate what you, or repeat what you said. And so I understand it. Basically the, the response is, was set, meaning you, you applied a pound in, or you applied a pesticide at a labeled rate or, or herbicide or whatever, you know, whatever that, that the rate and the, what you would do was set, but the trigger that, that, um, you know, caused that or resulted in that, that was, oh, that was also set at, at a certain threshold, meaning that, okay, at this level, we're going to consider it to be unacceptable to, to us, I suppose, or the homeowner, however you want to quantify that. And at that point, we're going to trigger, we're going to, we're going to apply a herbicide or we're going to apply a fertilizer. And just so I'm clear, that was on a per plot basis. And so that's how you ended up with your variation. Yeah. Yeah. So we would go in and at these different times, we would obviously rate all the plots. Yeah. Um, but then an individual plot would either get the application or not, depending on where it was at. So, yeah, man, that is a lot of work, man. <laughs> it was. <laughs> that, that is a lot of work. Wow. That's so there impressive. Were times where like, you know, we have 75 plots here and all oh, these 35 plots need uh, herbicide application. So we go out and flag those and then spray those. Oh, my goodness. And wow. It. Yeah. Wow. So if you had however many plots, 45, what was it, 45 plots or how many plots you ended up having? 75. 75 plots. And you had three plots that were less than quality of five, then you would just go and apply one pound nitrogen to just those three plots and do it only at the time of year when it's appropriate to do so. Right. Yep. Wow. Man, that is that is really impressive. <laughs> you have you have much more patience than I do. <laughs> that is a lot of work. Just give you an idea. I mean, it's easy, you give people an idea. You have to understand you're standing out in a field with little two meter square plots or six, you know, little six by six plots or whatever. And you're looking at. I assume you had little borders or what? You know, they were they weren't grown together. I don't know how you how you managed it in in, in that location, but there's just so many plots and they have to be rated. They have to be managed. They have to be looked at They're like little babies. You're constantly keeping an eye on yeah. them. And then when you see something, you have to make a note. I have to, I have to treat just that plot with just this herbicide, for example, or just one pound of in. So to keep up with that is, is, uh, that's, that's a really impressive. So well done on that. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. That's a, that's a, well, that's well done. We're doing something kind of similar to that. And, uh, we have a decision tree as well. And the reason I wanted, I'm glad you went over this table and I had it highlighted to go over is because I'm kind of leaning heavily that in that direction when it comes to things like applying nutrients for just normal BMPs. In other words, to just go out and apply a pound of in in the fall, because it's that time of year is probably an antiquated notion, an antiquated man- management practice. It, you probably do need a pound of N if you want to say, maintain some level of quality. But 
not not just because it's the fall, right? I mean, if the turf grass is acceptable and it's been acceptable and it's been growing well, um, I think I think we should maybe consider doing something like this or uh, adjusting the management practices in a way that incorporate a decision tree type mentality rather than just a standard one pound or standard two pounds or whatever the case is just yeah. because it's the fall, you know? Yeah. On a similar note, um, I try to, as far as talking about weed control so often, and I'm guilty of this myself, you know, you, you think, Oh, I, it's the springtime. I want to put down a pre-emergent for mm -hmm. crabgrass. Yeah. But we got to stop sometimes and just think, okay, what is my crabgrass weed pressure at my site? Have I had a pretty good, um, have I been putting down a pre-emergent herbicide for the last couple of years and reducing that crabgrass population seed bank in my soil? And so maybe if I don't put down a pre-emerge this year, I look at it more as save on not putting down the pre-emerge and do some sort of post-emergence application if I get pressure and I could just spot spray that out yeah. or hand weed it out if there's a really low population, right? Yeah. And so I think we need to stop and think more often like that instead of just continually doing the same, whether it's like you're saying, fertilizing nitrogen in the fall every every year, whether mm -hmm. we need it or not, or yeah. or putting down a pre-emerge every spring, whether we need it or not. So. Yeah. And the newer cultivars are going to change a lot of that. Like because my 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 lawn is has the newer cultivars of turf type tall fed. I don't have the label in front of me. Is that in in general, it tends to be a greener lawn than some of the lawns in my neighborhood that are 20, 25 years old. And I don't know what my neighbors are doing, but I know what I'm doing. And I'm not applying any nitrogen because <laughs> I don't want to mow it. <laughs> so and it looks fine, you know, so it's like, well, why would I apply nitrogen if it looks fine to me? So and I, I think a lot of these newer cultivars are going to uh, their, their value is going to stand out more whenever, you know, you're in low, if your mentality is, you know, well, you know what, I'm just going to wait until there's a slight little unacceptable turf and then I'm going to, you know, maybe add a little in or something. I know that's sort of a reactive approach rather than a proactive approach, but I think we can do that more frequently with these newer cultivars. Anyway, that's for another talk, I guess, too. So no, I agree. Yeah. So table four is the temperatures and stuff. Unless you have something important to talk about in this, I'm going to go pass through it and unless there's something critical. No, that's just highlighting just the, the kind of climactic differences between the sites. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, the, let's see, this table, I'm going to see if I can flip this sideways. I don't know if I can do this or not. Let me see. This this is going to stretch my limits of my ability here. But um, this table here is the visual turf quality and cultivars uh, 2019, 20, and 21 by season in Indiana. And I just highlighted the, the the far right one, the far right column is the overall average of turquoise. I know that's super small on your screen, but do you want to just hit the highlights on this? Sort of this is the, we're looking at the differences in turquoise quality as a, among cultivars. Yeah, yeah. So so what we did here is we took um, we took monthly turf quality uh, ratings mm -hmm. um, in each individual plot, obviously, and then we we um, averaged those out based on the season of the year spring summer and autumn and then we did that we averaged them over each year first year second year and third year but then we also averaged what's the overall average across three years mm -hmm. for each site and it, it and then it starts to stand out uh not only numerically but also statistically you know some of these fine fescues such as the cardinal two strong creeping red at the top mm -hmm. um the sea mist slender creeping red the the radar mm -hmm. chewing fescue just overall consistently higher turf quality than yep. say some of those Kentucky bluegrasses near the bottom and especially perennial ryegrass as well. Yeah. So yeah, there's also this, hard, what is this hard fescue Gerard? It was quite low. Is that a older? Yeah, cultivar? that's an older cultivar. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's an older cultivar of hard fescue. So the, this, the, one of the, one of the what? looking ones. Oh yeah. It's one of the worst ones. It's yeah. even lower than, than perennial ryegrass. That one was released. <laughs> in 1949 so it's still okay. grown and you can still find it so so right here i mean if you're gonna you know this is just from indiana we're gonna look at the next site in the next table but this right here there's a lot of numbers on this table but if you look at the overall average the take-home message is is that the newer cultivars um over two or three years uh, appear to have a higher quality now the other uh many of the other cultivars with the exception of 
the Kentucky bluegrasses are still at the acceptable limit, I guess, if you're going to say, if you're going to say six is the limit, I think you, maybe you said five. Yeah. And we said, in this case, we said five was you said five, um, okay. acceptable in this study. So yeah, there's, there's situations where, uh, you know, for example, the Ambrose chewing fescue, which was a slightly older chewing fescue, but not as old as say the Durar or Boreal, yeah. but it still provided, it still provided pretty good uh, turf quality. And yeah. that's, that's attributed to these, overall these fine fescues being yeah. uh you know liking the less inputs and managed as a a lower input site so. okay you, but you know from 6.4 to 7.4 you're going to see that the average homeowner would would be able to probably see a difference in a full point for sure so there is there is yeah. there is uh, an advantage in terms of turf quality let's go down to the minnesota location now so now we're in minnesota on the same turf quality what do we find here so you know and this is just Typical in any sort of research, we have different uh, different sites, so we have different a uh, different person rating the study. So you know, in, in turf quality scores, we have to keep in mind it's a subjective score, right? So something that I might give a quality rating of six, you might give it a, a five or a seven or something, right? And so the numbers are a little bit different, but the the main trend is still there with the the fine fescues doing uh, better than say the Kentucky bluegrasses mm -hmm. and then some of the cultivars of the fine fescues performing a little better than the, yeah. the older cultivars, but there wasn't as much of a difference than that we saw at Indiana with some of those new versus old cultivars. Yeah. It looks like everything in general has sort of declined. Do you think that's probably as a result of the, the rate or not necessarily the environment that it was in? <clears throat> uh, it was a little combination of both, I believe. Um, they got hit with rust up there quite a bit more. Okay. Um, they're doing more nitrogen fertilizer responses across the board. Hmm. Almost the entire study was getting hit by rust quite a bit. Okay. Uh, and so that, that at times decreased a lot of the plot quality. Okay. But in general, the Kentucky bluegrasses are at least a full point, if not more lower in both locations than the fine fescues. Yeah. The tall fescues are sort of maintaining their, their level here relative to the fine fescues. They're well, for 31 is not doing well at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this one here is okay. The, yep. the re regenerate, I think is what it's called. So the tall fescues are doing okay. The fine fescues are probably towards the top. And then the uh, Kentucky bluegrasses and printer rise are consistently towards the bottom. It looks like in both locations for the most part. Yeah. And, and another thing I want to highlight here is with these fine fescues. So we have the, you know, for fine fescues, it's this grouping of five different species or subspecies. I always, I always tell people, you know, there is no, there's not technically a turf grass that's called fine fescue. It's just this grouping terminology that we give these five different species and subspecies. And what we've seen through research um, is there's really, depending on where you're at in the country, uh, some of the fine fescues do better than others. And so up in Minnesota, they they consistently see the hard fescue and the sheep fescue do really well up there. And it, it may be just because it's a cooler, a uh, little bit cooler climate. And what we usually saw in Indiana was the strong creeping red and the chewings fescue did better than hard fescue. Yeah. Uh, and, and then so over here in Kansas, what we typically see is the hard fescue and the sheep fescue and the chewings fescue do a, quite a bit better than say a strong creeping red or a slender just because we're a little drier on the drier side. And so really kind of depends on where you're at in the country of, of which one of these hard fest or which one of these fine fescues is going to do a little bit better than others based yeah. on climatic differences. So, I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that. Cause I, it was one of my questions I actually, um, since you prior to meeting is that, the, you know, where's the geographic boundary? Cause here, here in Kentucky, uh, we have some fine fescues as well, but generally speaking, we'll, uh, recommend fine fescues in shaded environments, um, yeah. or where we just can't seem to get the turf grass to grow too well. Fine fescues tend to do better, but in, in general, we don't really see, I mean, if, it, if they're both in sunny locations, we don't really see the fine fescues perform quite as well as the tall fescues. And I don't know if that's the heat we have here or the water we have here, um, but it certainly seems like fine fescues will grow fine here. It just seems like the tall fescues might be a little more suitable for our location. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, if it's a heat thing or what, but. It's a heat thing. It's mainly, we, and we have the same situation in Kansas. And so, in this kind of middle transition zone type area, you know, in Ma I'm in Manhattan, Kansas, which is similar to, you know, Southern Indiana, Northern Kentucky, as far as the climate, I would typically recommend fine fescues more for shaded areas, um, okay. not so much for full sun. Now, if we get in the Northern parts of the country, um, you know, middle to Northern Indiana and up those Wisconsin, Michigan, all those, you could, you can 
Fine fescues will do great in the shade there as well. Don't get me wrong. But you could also start to venture out into more full sun areas as well, just because of the cool, little bit cooler conditions. So, okay. Um, but yeah, definitely when we get more in the transition zone, we got to maybe think more just more shaded areas. But that's not to say they, they could potentially work in the full sun as a low input site. But if we're trying to manage these, yeah. fine fescues in the full sun, uh, and be giving them the same fertilizer and irrigation that we would give a tall fescue Kentucky bluegrass lawn, it's, they're going to actually decline in quality. Probably. Okay. That's all great stuff. Let's get to, um, I, I do, I want to have enough time to get over these two figures that you got, you did, which I love. Um, whoops, I would did, did two, did one too many. I got to flip this page. Um, these two figures are awesome. So I want to make sure we get to those. Um, so that, that was the quality. Okay. I highlighted some stuff here, but I want to, I want to get to the, um, some of the discussion and the results. And, and I, uh, I highlighted essentially the entire section of inputs. I don't know if we're gonna have time to get to it. Cause I, I would have, I, I was highlighting this. I'm like, I'm just going to highlight the whole section. Cause this is really important. But what I'd like to, for you to discuss, if you can real quick is if I can get it on the screen here, um, this figure right here, which is figure one and then figure the next figure is, is great too. So I want to make sure we have time to discuss both of these. So what we're looking at, if for those listening are two figures, turf quality is on the Y axis. And then the season is on the X axis axis. So we're talking about spring, summer, autumn, and we're talking about turf quality from one to nine on the Y axis. And we're looking at uh, the Indiana site on one graph and the Minnesota site on the other graph. Can you just walk us through? We have very, the, all the very, well, not all of them. We have several of the of the uh, turf grasses um, as they change in quality over the season at each location. Can you walk us through just real quick the highlights? Yeah, so we had Indiana on the top for A, and then and then Minnesota on the bottom, and and we do actually have all the treatments here. We what we've done we is do. we combined them based on their oh. uh, fine fescue complex or aggregate, and so okay. we combined the strong slender and the chewing fescue all together as far as those newer cultivars. And then we combine the older cultivars together. So when you see something like Festuca rubra complex, that's the the strong the slender and chewing's new one. Okay. Thank you for Festuca explaining Ovina, that. That's the sheep and the hard. And mm -hmm. so since they're, they're within that, that complex together. Uh, but yeah, essentially what's going on here with the, what we, we started looking at, okay, what's the, if there are any trends over time on how these turf grasses as far as quality, you know what's that trend over time and what we saw on the top one there for for indiana which is a warm keep in mind it's a warmer climate we get a little bit more um heat and uh drought stress in the summertime obviously compared to um st paul minnesota and we we established these grasses and still starting out the next year they all started off pretty high quality except for our um sheep and our hard fescues were really they're a little bit slower to get established and mm. so they have a little bit more quality from the get-go but then we see that that's kind of the green and the yellow lines there. We see that upward trend over time. So they just progressively got better okay. over time, even though they were getting very little inputs. But then the and the other fine fescues, they were also starting a little bit on the lower side there in Indiana. But they also have that upward trend. Yeah. But then we look at well, what's the grasses that have the low the downward <laughs> trend over time, and that would be our Kentucky bluegrass and definitely the perennial ryegrass. Mm -hmm. um, and then our our tall fescue kind of has a slight little bit a little bit more slight downward trend, but not nearly as, as uh, much as the Kentucky bluegrasses and the perennial ryegrasses. Yeah. And then if we looked at the Minnesota site, it's not as much up upward or downward trend, more flat trends mm -hmm. um, over time. Uh, and just, just again, the more mild climate um, yeah. over time there, but we still see a little bit more of an upward projection with the, say, the, uh, the sheep and the hard fescue newer cultivars. Yeah. So the main thing home here is, those fine fescues might be a little bit harder to get going and established, but once they do, and you start managing it as a low input system, you should progressively see improvements um, over time in quality, um, or at least holding steady uh, as yeah. far as quality. Whereas a perennial ryegrass or Kentucky bluegrasses, you're going to get, you know, you get them established, they look great right away. And, yeah. But just then managing them as a low input grass, they're just going to be continuing to decline. And it's an uphill battle. Yeah. And I think that's pretty commonly accepted is particularly with perennial ryegrass where we get really rapid establishment, sometimes in less than a week and it looks great. And yeah. you start, you see it germinate and you see the grass turn green or the lawn turn green. And then, you know, over time you start to see a decline sometimes within the same season, depending on where you're at, obviously in the South where they overseed with that, or they used to oversee more with that. It would die in the summer because it gets so hot, but it would look good early on. So you see that up at the 
um, up at the Indiana site where you see perennial ryegrass look really good early on. And then it just progressively gets worse and worse and worse to where it's uh -huh. unacceptable at the end of the study uh, for whatever reason. So, but the, so the take home message really is it might take a little time to get these cultivars to get established with the ones that um, tend to be better in the long run, um, take are a little slow to get started compared to the other ones that are really good to be start, get started. But if we're, if we're sprinting, maybe go with the perennial ryegrass, but if you're looking to to go the long run and kind of see, you know, five, 10 years out, what's going to uh, be best for you. It seems like some of these other varieties, uh, of the fine fescues are, are the way to go in this study. It just don't be, don't be taken back by the slow establishment and the slow, you know, um, yeah. at the beginning being slow. Yeah. Yeah. And I should add, you know, the fine fescues for the most part, especially the strong creeping red slender and chewings, they're pretty quick to germinate just like tall fescue. They're, they're right around the same, uh, germination speed. Okay. Uh, obviously perennial ryegrass is probably the fastest right but and so they are faster to germinate and establish okay. uh, than kentucky bluegrass okay. so it's not so much about establishment speed it's just starting off they don't look as good okay as the perennial ryegrass which is probably just looking more lush and more green right oh, okay the, fair enough okay the the input section is just tremendous but i'm going to do that with these tables um so okay. <clears throat> this is the same sort of table we had um, before where it was turf quality, but now we're looking at inputs and the questions I have, I have a couple questions on this table. We're looking at them, the average fertile nitrogen fertilizer, the number of fertilizer and the and pesticide applications. So we're looking at the amount and then the number of applications that's pretty straightforward. But when you say <clears throat> annual fertilizer and pesticide input applications, you're simply saying we went out and we applied fertilizer and that counts as a one on this plot. Yes. And on the other plot, Correct let's say it's the same grass the same but it's a different rep different plot but it's the same grass and that one we actually had to do two applications so that's a two and so that's that's what you mean when you say annual fertilizer application it's very it's a very unusual metric to see in the literature but if i'm reading that right that's that's fantastic and and not easy to, to keep track of <laughs> yeah no that's exactly right so like just one like you're saying one application would be a one if it didn't receive anything, it'd be a zero. So yeah, man, that, that's impressive. So we have the annual. What, so let's just briefly talk about the annual to, uh, nitrogen requirements. So if you have you applied forty nine, we applied one pound of N on this plot and zero on the other, then the average would be half. And if you applied one and zero and two, and you take the average and so forth. So, but even if it's the same treatment, that's how you're coming up with these averages. And it looks like they varied from as low as maybe what is that? Maybe a third of a pound here of nitrogen with the slender creeping red fescue. Maybe that's the lowest. And then the highest, well, at least, at least numerically, the highest was, uh, looks like pound and three quarters, almost two pounds with the perennial rye. Am I reading that right? That's yeah, that's correct. Yep. So that's actually not crazy high, a pound and a half that's annual and perennial rye. Of course you're managing these as managing these as low input. So you're only you're only yeah, trying to meet a minimum level of of your standard was five on the quality scale. So this was the idea was to keep it above five, right? Right. Yeah. And and that I would agree that is probably low on the Kentucky bluegrass perennial ryegrass side. But what we'll see here next when we get into the next figure is when we're trying to manage these Kentucky bluegrasses or perennial ryegrasses as this variable input where we're doing this responsive uh, treatments. It's like we just consistently need to be throwing fertilizer at it. And it's just probably never getting up to what we want it to be. Okay. To where we are managing these, say a perennial ryegrass or Kentucky bluegrass as more of a medium to high quality lawn, mm -hmm. putting down four or five pounds of nitrogen. Uh, you know, we're going to have high quality lawn, but we're, again, we're putting down four or five pounds yeah. of nitrogen. Yeah. And so in this case, it's, it's on the low side, but we also have lower, lower turf quality. Yeah. So this, uh, this sort of, these sort of data, are really speaking to people like like me as a homeowner. Like I want an okay lawn. I don't want a lot of weeds. I just want to be able to. I don't really want to mow it that much. I don't want to water it that much. I don't want to spread any fur. I don't. I I don't want to do anything to my lawn other than enjoy it. Honestly, that's just that's that's what the way I function. But the neighbor next door might have a different priority, a different threshold. They may want their golf their lawn to look like a golf course or something. I don't know. Um, but so, but this is really speaking to, I think a huge chunk of homeowners and lawn care operators who, you know, they're not trying to maintain Augusta national standards. They want to maintain a minimum standard that's acceptable. And what this is showing is that there's a, there's a difference between the species that you have on the lawn base, you know, that's going to determine how much you actually need to put in, in the newer cultivars 
seem to consistently require fewer inputs. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, no, I agree. Yep. And in okay. uh, so many of those fine fescues, but also the tall, the turf type tall fescue, which was a newer cultivar. Okay. Uh, of tall fescue that that also you know yeah it's uh what sixty there so sixty kilograms so that's yeah. uh, a little over a pound you know one uh pound and a quarter one, or something pound a little pound and a quarter yeah something like but that but it's it's on the lower side if we look at that compared to say the bluegrasses or the ryegrasses and yeah so that it, it did fairly well so. that's true yeah the bluegrasses and ryegrasses are requiring quite a bit more now when it comes to the number of inputs so the number of times you got to walk across the grass and spray something we're seeing the same trend where we have you know, the, the slender creeping red fescue is almost basically a half of an application on average. I mean, versus up to as high as many as three from the perennial ryegrasses and in, in the, in the high twos with the Kentucky bluegrasses. So the Kentucky bluegrasses and the perennial ryegrasses are requiring more applications. They're requiring more amount of product um, than, than some of the fine fescues. Is that, mm-hmm. that seems like yep. what I'm seeing here. Okay. <clears throat> but to me, well, let's get to the next. Okay, let's get to the next gra- thing. I'm, I'm anxious to get to the graph because I want to, this graph is awesome. I love or this figure is awesome. But let me let's so let's go move to the Minnesota site. So same same table, Minnesota average nitrogen, average total inputs. Do we see anything different here than we did in the in the previous location? There's similar trends. The one thing I would highlight is so even no, more northern climates in the United States. I, again, it's even more favorable for say these fine fescues. And if you look at, uh, you know, slender creeping red sea mist there, the mm-hmm. radar chewing, the yeah. uh, jetty hard fescue and the sheep fescue, mm-hmm. you know, it shows uh, 49 kilograms there in the first year. So they gave it a pound of nitrogen in the first year. But if we if we go back and look in the text, we mentioned that hey, that that first spring in 2019 when we were pretty much all these were very close to hundred percent, but we thought, okay, we need to give these a little shot of nitrogen before we get this study really going mainly because it was actually the bluegrasses were slower to grow in, but we were like, we got to just treat all the plots the same. We want them all to start off on the same foot. And so Minnesota gave, they did two applications of a half pound each um, in April and early May to equal that one pound of nitrogen. And so if you look at those numbers in that first, as far as the fertilizer applications and you see some of those fine fescues getting one pound of nitrogen in that yeah. first 2019 year. Yeah. After that, they didn't get any fertilizer yeah, for right the here. next two years. And yeah, they so, did really well. If we go back and look at those turf quality scores, yeah, they didn't receive any more fertilizer other than that first uh, application that all the plots got. And so that really drastically really reduced the amount of, um, the amount of uh, total inputs and all that. Great. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. So one pound the first year, the next two years, you didn't reply anything and, yeah. um, and you still had the quality, um, above, above five. So great. So that, and then and when they look at the total number of applications, again, we see a similar trend where the perennial ryegrass here is, re- is requiring more than in the other location, but it's, uh, <clears throat> everything's requiring a little bit more than the other location, but it's higher than all the other treatments where we're requiring basically four, uh, four applications of either pest, uh, combined fertilizers and pesticides. And then I don't see anything even close to that. You know, that's the only A in this whole thing. So then we see the bluegrasses requiring three essentially applications and then the fine fescues again, requiring essentially two or less than two uh, applications. So it's a, it's a consistent uh, result. The magnitude changed based upon the location, maybe the, maybe the raider, whoever, you know, there's a number of factors there, but, um, but the, the differences among treatments seem to be fairly consistent um, among uh, d- different yeah, locations. Yeah, and, and the one thing here is, is the perennial ryegrass, obviously, same for both sites. It just it requires a lot of inputs to, to maintain acceptable quality. And then we see that with the bluegrass as well. But we do see some variability with the bluegrasses. So I should just, I just want to mention that is, you know, we included four different classifications or types of bluegrasses here with these four different cultivars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did get some reviewer responses saying, Hey, we probably should have included like a Ken blue, uh, Kentucky bluegrass or some of these, maybe an older Kentucky bluegrass that is known for, um, potentially to be used at a more low input type site. Um, and so that's, that's the one thing I will mention is there could be some Kentucky bluegrass cultivars that maybe would have performed a little better or required a few less inputs, but I think generally uh, as an overall, I, I just think you're going to have more likelihood of success with these fine fescues or a tall fescue compared to, to the bluegrasses. So perfect. Let me flip this page around one more time. Oops. I'm I keep, I'm doing some dances here with the, 
with the uh, uh, the screen here. Okay, this is what I want to talk about. So I rarely see stuff like this. Okay, it, it's it. Well, I should say rarely. It's just not really that common. And these these last two figures, this we're we're actually below the conclusion. We're in the conclusions now. But before we get there, there's a little bit of results left, and <clears throat> that is, in my opinion, these graphs. Why am I interested in these graphs? Because I think anybody, I don't care if you're a scientist or a homeowner or you're my 11 year old autistic son can look at these figures and it can, they can pull something out of this, these figures in a practical way that they can man, they can then, Oh, okay. I get it now. This makes sense. That's why I'm interested in these graphs. And what these are, are turf quality on the Y axis and then inputs on the X axis. So fertilizer and pesticides. So the number of inputs is what we're measuring on the x-axis in the, in the in the turf quality, and he's broken these up into quadrants. So, do, would you mind, um, Ross, kind of walking through uh, what it means to be low input, low quality, low input, high quality, and so forth, and where the, the various uh, species and cultivars yeah. fall? So, just setting these up, we got turf quality on the y-axis on both there from one to nine, and we got our our um, average number of inputs per year on the x-axis from zero to five uh, and we have indiana on the left and, and then minnesota there on the right and we then have our 15 different treatments here indicated by the different symbols and their color and then we split this quadrant up into four quadrants um, based on either low input high quality which would be always in the upper left meaning they require less inputs and they will provide higher quality when we're managing them as these kind of variable input low input type systems then the upper right would be a high input, high quality, which uh, meaning they're gonna require more inputs, but they will also still provide high quality like the upper left. Um, then the lower left is low input, low quality, meaning uh, they require very low inputs, but you're gonna get low quality out of them. And then the lower right is high inputs, low quality. And that meaning in that quadrant there on the, the bottom right, meaning Hey, we threw a lot of inputs at these, but they were still providing very low quality um, based on the the practices of these of these of this experiment. And what we typically found is the the Kentucky bluegrasses and the perennial ryegrass would uh, end up in this this bottom right quadrant, meaning we threw a lot of inputs at them, and they consistently uh, just again quality never got up to what it was compared to the upper left or the upper right there. So yeah, so you don't want to be in the bottom right, basically, where you you're don't putting want to be in the bottom right. Now. Yeah. And we didn't see anything in that lower left, the low input, low quality uh, quadrant, but we typically see those fine fescues in the low input, high quality or kind of right around the middle. Mm -hmm. And then the tall fescues started to kind of drift more towards the high input, high quality. But again, those tall, that turf type tall fescue was, did fairly well overall and, and was kind of right there in the middle, mm -hmm. leaning the upper left so some of the let's talk about some of the uh cultivars there's one uh one or two cultivars or maybe three that are in the top left hand um quadrant in both locations so one of them is the sea mist and uh the other one that seems to sort of be in that general area is well there's a couple of them the marco polo sort of in the top left I mean, consistently and and the the jetty is there any other, yeah. any other ones so, um, so there's the fine the fescues, really. Yeah, the, the cardinal two strong creeping red uh, was typically in there, and and also the tall, the turf type tall fescue I should mention is is close there, and and the radar chewing fescue. So, for the fine fescues, those fine, it's always those new and improved cultivars, right? And yeah. some of the older ones like boreal and um, ambrose chewings, those were almost kind of in that upper left corner or close to it. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely not in that bottom right, like we'd find with the Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrass. So, yeah. um, yeah, we find those newer cultivars of the fine fescues and then the turf type tall fescue, uh, most consistently in that, that yeah. upper left, pretty much the upper left, the low input, high quality, or the turf or the, the turf type tall fescue is sort of, sort of in the middle, but in the, in the, in that area of the top left hand quadrant and the fine fescues and then consistently in both locations, we have the Kentucky or the bluegrasses and the rye grasses. So, I mean, it's so oftentimes I think homeowners and lawn carpenters can get um, right, rightfully confused or lost in a lot of the scientific jargon. But th this to me seems to speak. It's three years in two different locations 
And we see fairly consistent results when it comes to, you know, how much input do I need and where's my turf going to fall on the quality scale. And if, if you want to me, it seems like if you want to have a low input, high quality lawn or, you know, whatever, the, whatever the turf you're managing, there's some information on this graph that I think people can walk away with um, and, and not be confused at all by it. I, and I like that a lot. I really appreciate you doing that, that figure. That's really good. I like this graph a lot. Okay, let's get to the conclusions and we'll wrap this whole thing up. There's a couple of things I just want to, you know, I like it when people make firm conclusions. <laughs> it's very rare. Um, but if your results support it, make the conclusion. I tell grad students, if your results support, if you're going to make a firm conclusion, you better have firm results to back it up. And, um, and, I, and I like practical, you know, take home messages that someone can walk away with who's not a scientist. And that's what I've highlighted. I think I, think I did this in yellow. Um, so let me just read the last paragraph or last two that I've highlighted and um, we'll go from there. You can add to it if you want to. Uh, the results prove that fine fescue taxa, especially newer cultivars, are excellent choices to provide high turf quality with fewer inputs, reducing fertilizer and pesticide inputs by an average of 41 to 56 percent or more compared to tall fescue, Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrass. So right there. I mean, if you want something to walk away with, that's a great sentence. Yeah, okay. Uh, in addition, older cultivars of the, uh, the, the Ruber species can also help turf practitioners reduce fertilizer and pesticide input significantly compared to traditional turf grass species like Kentucky bluegrass or perennial rye. Okay. And then we get to the last, last uh, paragraph here. I want to get to this, at least to the yellow part here. Fine fescue taxa, especially newer cultivars, are the best choice for low-input, cool-season turfgrass systems in the Midwestern United States. Now, you've, you've so you framed it within this location. This is what you this is what you found, and, and that's that's appropriate. Tall fescue is another potential option for low-input, cool-season turfgrass systems. However, it may require more fertilizer, pesticide inputs than fine fescue. So, <clears throat> and that's what you found consistently: is that the fine fescues in your locations consistently were at the top and then tall fescues and then below those were the Kentucky bluegrasses and pruner rye. And now here comes the yellow that I've highlighted. Turf grass practitioners who wish to establish and manage low input cool season turf grass systems should refrain from using most Kentucky bluegrass or perennial ryegrass cultivars, which are not long-term sustainable options because of the high fertilizer and pesticide input requirements to maintain consistent acceptable turf. Now I'll say this, you are you have you are have much more courage than I do, okay? <laughs> because it's not easy for me to write something like that in a scientific uh, paper. But if it's true and that's what you found, then say it. You know, you you you, yeah. you know it, it's you at the end of the day, this information needs to be employed. It needs to be used. And if you're a turf practitioner and you're looking for low input, high quality, then you need to shy away from these uh, types of turf grasses and move more towards those turf types of turf grasses. That's basically what you're saying, correct? Right. Yep. And I don't, I can't remember if that was, that's probably a combination of both Aaron and myself, or maybe that was him pushing that sentence more. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know either. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. well, I just, I just, every time I write something I real firm, I I'm like, oh yeah, uh, I just write something real firm and then I'm like, ah, oh, man, I guess there's an, there's an exception to that rule. I better be careful, you know? And <laughs> so I end up sometimes chickening out and I don't write it in there. Um, but the last sentence, and then we'll wrap it up. These findings further highlight the importance of proper species and cultivar selection based upon site conditions, expectations, plan management strategies, and available inputs. For example, if improper species or cultivars were planted, then increasing fertilizer and pesticide inputs is not a long-term solution to maintain adequate performance. Instead, turf grass renovation and planting the appropriate species and cultivars will increase the likelihood of a more sustainable turf grass system with less inputs. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at when it comes to cost. At some point, Ross, I, so I'd like to see, you know, some scientists run the, run the numbers on the cost, you know, because at some point, what you're saying is, is that you've been run, you've been riding this car for 25, 30 years and you're now you're having to change the uh, the the ignition or you're trying to change the the you know things are breaking on it you're having to change the spark plugs you're having to constantly keep up with this old car cuz it's falling apart meanwhile at some point the expense of buying a new car is less than the expense of maintaining the old one right and that's yeah. that's kind of what you're saying in this last paragraph when it comes to turf grasses yeah and just from a um environmental or sustainable standpoint the you know it just cut your losses and start over with a with the appropriate species for your site which will cut down on inputs 
instead of just continuing to throw more fertilizer, more pesticides at it to get it up to the quality that you expect, you know? Yeah. Uh, so with that, with the costs and, and all that, we you know we didn't factor any of that into this study. It would have been great to, to start doing that. And I, and I agree. I think that kind of work needs to be done. And I'm, I'm not currently doing anything like that, but to similar to that, I am currently conducting some research that's looking at taking the same kind of decision tree with these thresholds. I've, I've changed some of this, uh, you know, uh, settings a little bit on this decision tree, but I'm, I'm looking at, okay, what if we sod an area compared to seeding an area? Okay. Obviously sod costs more money up front mm-hmm. compared to seeding, which is cheaper. But if we start taking into account, maybe I'm going to need a, a herbicide application or two because of when I'm growing in the grass, I'm getting a lot of weed pressure and that's going to affect the overall stand of the grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that, when I'm growing in the seed, I'm going to need more fertilizer as well. Whereas if we were to sod that area, uh, we can we don't have to fertilize as much. And so starting to quantify these inputs, but also put some cost to it to help out the turf practitioner of, yeah, the sod might cost more up front, but maybe you save more in the long run with less inputs. You might. And, and yeah. numbers to that. So. No, I just think when it comes to like things like pesticides, we're used to hearing, you know, it costs $55 per acre or cost whatever $60 in ag. They talk about that a lot. We're going to gain so much dollars per acre of yield or whatever. And in, in, in turf grass, it doesn't seem like we've really utilized that concept to its fullest extent, you know, where we can actually talk dollars and cents to people and, and show a homeowner, show a, show a long care operator. Hey, it's going to cost you $2 up front per square foot, but Versus say seed, which whatever the number is, I'm just making these numbers up, say a dollar a square foot. But over two or three years, you can see where the sod is going to cost this much. I don't even know what the results would be. I'm just saying that that general concept of including the cost of maintaining it in the, in the, you know, management practices and so forth. I, I, I wish, I guess I wish I did more of that and I, and I don't, I like it when we see research that concludes dollars and cents we just see it a lot in ag we don't see it a lot in hort you know yeah and it's probably just because the egg you can you can quantify it by the yield right and we yeah. can't yeah able to do that in the turf industry so perfect well thanks so much i mean basically the take home yeah. message is species matter <laughs> you know new, new cultivars are not just out there because you know that's the new marketing thing there's a lot of money that goes into developing these cultivars there's a lot of criteria used to, to pardon the pun, weed out the lower end, you know, cultivars and the ones that make it to the top, hopefully are the ones that make it to market. And it really does show an impact when it comes to the inputs that you need to maintain them. It, it, it really is. You can yeah. see it, you know, and I, and I don't know if it's true or not. I'll, I'll, I'll end it with this and you can correct me if I'm wrong is, and I'm not a seed guy. I'm not a grass guy in terms of like the, the level of knowledge that you all have. I'm a soil person, but it seems to me like if, if, when, when the question comes up, well, how do I go find these? How do I, how does someone go find these new cultivars? It seems to me that if you don't know, then the cultivars that people are selling at the big box stores, assuming that it's a turf type tall fescue or, or, you know, a fine fescue have not, as long as it's one of the newer ones, then the chances are pretty good that it's better than what you got in your lawn. If your lawn's 20 or 30 years old, you know, so I don't know if it's yeah. necessarily I have to go find this specific one, this specific cultivar. And if I can't find it, then I can't do it. Well, that's great if you can find it, but if you can't, seems to me the chances are good that the cultivar you put in, if it's a newer one, is going to be better than what you got. Is that, am I naive in saying that? I I agree with that. I think it also maybe depends a little bit on what species we're talking about. So we see typically with, with tall fescue, the turf type tall fescue, you know, if you look at some of the NTEP trials around the country, a lot, there's a lot of good, new cultivars coming out and there's they're not that much different you know and so yeah. when we talk about like turf type tall fescue really any of the new ones are, are great uh maybe the bluegrasses there's a little bit more separation as far as the genetics there so you maybe need to be a little more careful depending on what your your site conditions are okay uh, and so it kind of yeah i'd say it's, it's a little bit maybe depending on what species you're going after but it is difficult that's that's the hardest part i uh, for our field day here in kansas I um, highlighted our, we have a fine fescue NTEP trial and a tall fescue NTEP trial that I spoke on. And the hardest part is as a turf practitioner or homeowner, how do I then, when I see these new cultivars that are doing really well, how do I purchase these? Where do I get these at? And Mm -hmm. yeah, you can go in these big box stores or your garden centers and they might be uh, selling them and it's maybe in some sort of blend. Um, What I try to say is, you know, 
to kind of compare it to if you were going to go buy a new car or a new TV or computer or whatever, maybe you're going to do a little homework first, right? You're going to go and research it a little bit, figure out what exactly do you want, what is going to fit your need. And so we need to approach buying our grass species cultivars that same way. We, we can't just go into the store and just think it's going to be the best thing for me. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of homework. It's going to take a little bit of looking online, figuring out, looking at some and looking at the NTEP data, which is sometimes hard to navigate through. And, and they're working on getting that, um, that website more user-friendly uh, to then put in your location and, and actually have some more clear info, I should say. Um, but it's going to take some, you know, diving into some literature and, and looking at some results to figure out what's potentially the best. And then you can go somewhat educated into these stores with an idea in mind of, of what to be looking for. Yeah. And that's the way I would approach it instead of just going in and, and you know, I wouldn't just go to a car dealership and buy the first car I see. So mm-hmm. um, I'm going to do my homework. So. I like that. I like that analogy. Yeah. I mean, I do a little homework when I'm looking for a car or looking for something like, you know, whatever I might be doing, I don't just walk in and buy something off the shelf. And uh, I do like that idea. So people can go to th- places like NTEP, North, North, the National Turfgrass Evaluation Program to find the most current um, cultivars. And I, like I said, if they can't find, I mean, again, I might be wrong. I'm not a, like, I'm not a seed person, but I just say, if you can't find that specific variety, the chances are good that, you know, the varieties that are in these newer blends are probably better than what you got. <laughs> so especially yes. if you're launched 30 years old, you know, which is the case in a lot of locations. Yep. So, um, it's also just being mindful of what's included in that blend or mixture, you know, you yeah. know, obviously look for anything that if it says like VNS variety, not stated, I would shy away from that, but also maybe just being educated on what are some of the older cultivars as well. Being yeah. on the lookout for making sure like Boreal or, or, you know, K31 or, you know, so we're not purchasing yeah. these older ones, even though they're mixed in with some of the newer ones. Yeah. I mean, I'm, this is as a homeowner, not as a scientist per se, but as a homeowner, I, I'm not really interested in buying blends that ha- like, let's say in my, in Kentucky, we generally re- re- uh, recommend tur- turf type tall fescue for home lawns. And when you go to the home, the box stores, it's never a hundred percent turf type tall fescue. It has some bluegrass in there. You almost have, always has perennial ryegrass in there to get the seed to kind of germinate early and, you know, makes it look nice, but I don't like that. Because I know I'm not looking for perennial ryegrass. I'm not looking for bluegrass. I don't want those in my lawn, even if they will die out later mm-hmm. on. I want 100% of what, I, what I'm looking for, turf type tall fescue. So what I end up doing is I end up going online and finding a seed blender. And the one I end up using is, is in Tennessee. Um, and I just order a bag from them. That costs me 150 bucks rather than 40 at the big box store. But I'm getting a 50-pound bag versus whatever it is, 5 or 10-pound bags at, at the big box store. But... I know in that variety, in that blend, it is what I want. It's a newer variety. I can see it, you know, and I know what I'm getting. So that's a little yeah. bit of extra step, but I think, I think it's worth it because otherwise I'm going to be getting a blend that only has a small percentage. When I say small, say 50% of the seed in the blend that is actually the turf that I want. Like for example, turf type tall fescue, as opposed to having a mixture of other things in there that I don't really want. So anyway, just keep that in mind. Yep. Dr. Braun, thank you so much. There was uh, a good response. I, th- I think there's uh, a lot of people who find this very useful. You corrected me. I, I, I would have definitely said a few things incorrect, so I'm glad you were here to explain that. And the decision tree is is brilliant. Those figures are are, are brilliant. I, I like I like a lot of the work you've, you've done in this work. I'm looking forward to see more of your work come out, and, I, and I'm 100% confident that you will keep pumping them out because you got some good grad students doing some good work, and I'm looking forward to their, their future work. So thank you very much. Well, thank- Thanks. I appreciate uh, the time and, and uh, ha- you have me on here. So perfect. Everybody else. Um, remember tomorrow I'll, I won't be on in the morning. I'll probably be on in the afternoon, but if I'm not, cause I can't talk cause I got Novocaine or whatever's in my, <laughs> my mouth, I'll try to do it on Friday morning and next week we're off cause of fall break. Thank you for everybody for showing up today. Have a great day. See you next time.